I'm excited to start this series today. We're in Philippians 1, 21 through 24. That's where we're beginning today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to use one of the ones in front of you, you can. Uh, so years ago, there was a professor of psychology at Cal Berkeley named James Bedford. And Dr. Bedford was dying of cancer. He knew that his days were numbered. And he let it be known to all of his friends and family that he wanted to be cryogenically frozen. And nobody had ever done this before. It had been talked about. It had been a subject of science fiction and speculation. Nobody had actually done it. So, but he let them know, okay, I want my body to be frozen and, and keep me frozen until such time as, as, which, as when humanity has figured out how to beat death. Once we've conquered death and we've figured out how to live forever, then you can thaw me and revive me and, and then I'll get to live forever with you. Well, that all sounds fine. He even put $100,000 in his will for that purpose, to keep my body preserved until that time. That all sounds fine, but nobody had done this before. So when Bedford died, the nurse wasn't ready. His family wasn't ready. His nurse actually went up and down the street gathering ice from the neighbors to ice down his body until they could figure out what to do. And then there, there was a facility nearby that said, okay, well, we'll store him for a fee. And they kept him for a while encased in liquid nitrogen, but... The $100,000 didn't last very long. And so the son of James Bedford had to take his body and put it in a self-storage facility that he, he paid for and rented. And, and then he had to come by and check on it, make sure that liquid nitrogen didn't need topping off ever so often. And this went on for many years until an organization called Alcor Life Extension was formed. They now have this huge warehouse where there are several hundred people, including James Bedford's body, and there are 3,000 people on their wait list. Now, this is a big deal. There are a lot of people in this world who have, these, who have this idea that, okay, I'm going to find a way to beat death. Uh, you may have heard of Oracle Corporation. Oracle was founded by a guy named Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison, one of the richest men in the world, annually gives over $40 million. That's per year to research, trying to determine how we can overcome death. And there are many others who are donating toward this cause. Now, that's one way that humanity tries to overcome our fear of death. And that's, that's one of our most basic fears ever since there have been people. There's been this idea of, oh no, I'm gonna die someday, what do I do? So one way is, okay, let's find a way to beat it. Another way is, well, let's just use it as motivation. I mean, if I'm only gonna live a certain amount of time, I better really live. I mean, as they said in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Today, we talk about having a bucket list. I, there's these places I want to go, these experiences I want to have, these things I want to do before I kick the bucket. And so there's this idea that death is motivation. But others say, no, 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 there's a third way. I just, I'm just going to ignore it. Now, a lot of young people, I bet if you're under 40 especially, you rarely think about death, most, most of you. And, and even a lot of folks in their middle years and maybe even some in their older years are, are just like, ah, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to think about it. It's, it's just not, it doesn't do any good to dwell on it. I'm just going to pretend it's not going to happen. And then death inevitably comes crashing into your life anyway. A loved one passes away or you get a, a terminal diagnosis. And so uh, ignoring it is not really a solution. And then there are people who say, well, death is reality. Let's just accept it and learn to live with it as, as a natural part of life. I read about a, a woman who was an atheist and she wanted to raise her son in such a way that he did not have to encounter any talk about God or any religious uh, language until he was at least a teenager and he could make a decision for himself. And, and so that was going along fine for her until one day uh, a, a little boy in her son's class died. And this kid's seven or eight years old. And so, you know, as Christians, when those things happen, we at least have some equipment to comfort our children with. 
But as an atheist, she didn't have that. And so she really had to think hard, okay, how am I going to approach this? And so what, this is what she did. She sat down with her son and she said, now I know what, what happened to your friend is really sad and it's fine for us to cry about it, but just understand that his body is, is in the ground now and it's, it's becoming one with the earth. Over time, it's just going to become one with the earth and it will actually fertilize the grass and the trees and the flowers. So next spring, when the flowers pop out, It'll, we'll see it and we'll, we'll remember him and it'll be like, he's still with us. And the little boy said, but I don't want him to be fertilizer. And I agree. There's got to be a better way, right? Than ignoring it, than accepting it, than trying to beat it, than using it for motivation. We're starting this series, Since Heaven is Real, because we want to ask the question, if we believe what the Bible says about heaven, how will we actually live? Pew Research asked the question, how many of you believe in heaven? 72% of Americans said, yes, I believe there is an actual place called heaven. That's almost three out of four people. Among evangelical Christians, the number was 88%. I'm not sure why it's not 100%, but 88%. So basically nine out of 10 people sitting in pews say, yes, I believe there's a heaven. But I think, this is just me, I think those numbers are inflated. Because I don't think that many people actually believe what the scriptures say. I think probably that many people actually believe in an afterlife, maybe even believe that there's a place where God is, where we go. They may believe in a concept of it, but my contention is that if we actually believed what the Bible says about heaven, we would live such radically different lives, it would change our country. This would be a different place to live. That's the power of hope. So over the next eight weeks, we'll look at that question. How will we live in light of the things that the Bible says about heaven. The first thing today we're going to look at is we shouldn't fear death. The way we look at death completely changes once we understand what the scriptures say. So we're starting here with Philippians 1, just to give you a little background since we just got off a series where we know how important context is, right? Paul writes the book of Philippians from prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. And he writes to them knowing that this may be his last letter. Now, it wasn't, as it turns out, but it, this may be the last time I communicate with you. They might take me out next week and take my head off. As a Roman citizen, if they're going to execute Paul, it's probably going to be by beheading, although you never know with Rome, they might decide to make an example of him and crucify him or, or burn him at the stake. So Paul is writing them in kind of a desperate situation. And here's what he says. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So I, I want you to just imagine that this happened to me instead of Paul, that, that I, and I, I try to put myself in this situation, if I were arrested for preaching the gospel and I were in prison and there was a possibility that I might be executed and I had a chance to write y'all, my friends, my brothers and sisters, a letter and say, here's what I want you to pray for. Don't you think that I would pray, that I would say, please pray, please, 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 with all your heart, with sugar on top, pray that I would be released. I don't want to die. Don't you think I would say that? The answer is yes, that is what I would say. So why doesn't Paul say it? You can read the whole book of Philippians. It'll take you five to 10 minutes. You won't see him say, please pray that I will be released. In fact, I can't think of a time when Paul says that in any of his prison letters. Well, why? Paul goes as far as to say, whether they kill me or not, I win either way. How can he say such things? Well, first of all, Paul knows 
If they execute me, they've done me a favor because the day I die is the day I stand in the presence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, he's already written that years earlier. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See, Paul knows, in spite of what you may have heard, in spite of what you may believe, if you die in Christ, you are immediately in heaven. There's no gap. There's no guessing. There's no purgatory. You are in the presence of God. Your last earthly breath is followed immediately by your first heavenly breath. That's the way it works. So Paul says, they kill me, however they kill me, they're doing me a favor. They're giving me a promotion. But if they set me free, on the other hand, that's good news too, because there's still lost people I want to tell the gospel. There's still poor people who need help. They're still hurting people who need to be comforted. And I can't do any of those things in heaven because there aren't lost people or poor people or, or, or hurting people in heaven. So I, I want to do as much of that now as I can. So either way, I win. What I just described, that attitude that Paul is expressing, is what the Bible calls hope. Hope. We use the term hope to mean something that we wish might be true. I hope. I hope that my kids aren't getting into trouble. I hope the Texans have a good season. Probably not going to happen. That's the second week in a row I've dogged on the Texans. Y'all counting? When the Bible uses the word hope, it means I know. I just don't have it yet. I know it's there. I know it's coming. And that's what Paul is saying. I know it's coming. And I'm excited about it. And this is what keeps me going. And I got to tell you, hope is something that the world can't give you and it can't take away. So when the world sees hope, they see something they've never seen before. Because what does the world hope for? What are you hoping for if you don't have Jesus? You're hoping we elect somebody in 2024 who will, who will be perfect and who will make our country everything we want it to be? Well, good luck with that. Let me, know, let me know in a few years how that worked out. Hadn't worked out yet. You're hoping that our economy is going to spike and it's going to stay up there. So everybody's just going to be driving around. I mean, poor people are driving in Volvos and Mercedes and that's the way it's going to work. No, that's no hope. Hope that this world offers is disappointment. But the hope of Christ does not disappoint. And when the world sees us living in that hope, it is unbearably attractive because it's what they've been missing. Dr. Francis Collins, some of you know, is the head of the National Institutes of Health, pretty much the preeminent medical researcher in our country. He grew up in a family that was not aggressively hostile to religion, but they just weren't religious. It just wasn't something that came up. They were, they were people of science, and, and they raised him lovingly, but they raised him to be a person who, who researched things, who, who sought out knowledge. Uh, when he was 27 years old, he was a medical resident. He was uh, learning how to treat people for illness. And as part of his residency, he had to meet with people who were terminally ill, people for whom there was no hope of cure. And he began to discern. He'd never really been around religious people, but at this point is when he began to realize there's a real difference between the way people who have faith in God look at death and people who don't have faith in God. And these people over here approach it in a much more healthy way. And because he had this scientific mindset, he, he just wanted to research that. And so he kept asking them questions. So what is it that you believe? What do you think happens after you die? Why do you believe that? How does that impact the way that you live now? And one day as he's asking these questions of, of one of these women, uh, she looks at him and says, well, doctor, what do you believe? And that caught him flat-footed. He hadn't expected that question because he honestly, he didn't know what he believed about death. And so he decided, you know, I, 
I've always assumed there's not a God because every smart person I know believes there's no God, so it must be true. But, you know, if as a scientist, I really ought to put some research into it. So he began to research that question. As part of his research, he met with a Methodist pastor uh, who, as he says, put up with my, with my uh, blasphemous questions and steered him towards a book called, uh, called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard of it. This is a book that a friend of mine who's not a believer back in college, he called it insidious. Atheists do not like this book. It's hard for them to argue with. And Dr. Francis Collins found it that way as well. Here's what he writes about his experience reading Mere Christianity. He said, I realized that most of my objections against faith were utterly simplistic. Here was an Oxford intellectual giant, talking about C.S. Lewis, who had traveled the same path from atheism to faith and had a way of describing why that made sense that was utterly disarming. It was also very upsetting. It was not the answer I was looking for. And Collins became a Christian at the age of 27. That's the power of faith. It can change everyone around you. Now, where do we, where do we get this hope, this hope that changes lives? Well, we get it from the same place Paul got it. So let's look at Paul's hope. Where did it come from? Three things. Number one, you have to know what's coming. You have to know what's coming if you want hope. Does anybody remember? Some of you do because you are little kids, but most of us don't. What it was like to be small. What it was like to be very young. Put it this way. Can you remember Christmas Eve and how excited you were? Remember that tension of, okay, I know I need to go to sleep because Santa's not going to come while I'm awake, but I'm so excited. I don't know how I'm going to possibly fall asleep. And that's always a terrifying thing, right? What if I stay awake all night? But you were just so excited. That's hope. In the last couple of weeks of school, same thing. Summer's coming. You're so excited. Oh boy, it's going to be summer. That's hope. When I was in junior high, my best friend was a guy named Michael. Actually, he was my best friend from fourth grade all the way through senior year of high school. Uh, but in junior high, uh, for a while, every once in a while, my mom and his mom would get together and they'd say, okay, uh, you know, you get to go home. You get to take, put it this way. I'd wake up on a Friday morning and my mom would say, hey, Michael's mom has said you could spend the night with him tonight, so I'm going to send you to school with a change of clothes and a toothbrush. And, you know, it was junior high. Junior high is miserable. Everybody's an idiot in junior high. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just true. And you teachers, they're just kind of tolerating you at best. It's, it's, it's a rough, rough period of life. But those days when I knew I was going home at the end of the day to Michael's house, those were good days. The, the classes weren't boring. The, the stupid kids weren't that stupid. And, and it, was, it was actually, it was good. It was, it was positive. It was, it was fun. Why? Because I knew that as soon as the day was over, we were going to go to Michael's house. We were going to play football. He actually had pads and a helmet. I mean, we would actually put on pads and tackle each other. It was, we'd play, we, we'd shoot BB guns or we'd, you know, tell jokes or watch movies. It was going to be a fun day. It wouldn't have been nearly the same. If my mom would have said, hey, there's this new kid, you haven't met him, you're going to go to his house tonight, that wouldn't have been exciting at all. Because what if, what if I don't like him? What if he doesn't like me? You have to know what's coming, and then there's hope. See, as adults, we don't hope like that anymore. We've, we've had too many disappointments. See, what Paul is saying is, I have hope because I know what's there. I've seen it. 
He had this experience some 20 years before that time in prison, 14 years before he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Now, let me just stop there and say, although Paul is using third person here, he's talking about himself. And you can see that when you read all of of 2 Corinthians 12. And when he says, I was caught up to the third heaven, don't get hung up on that term. In the ancient world, the, the ancient people would say, the sky is the first heaven, the stars are the second heaven, and the place where God dwells is the third. Paul is simply saying, I went to the place where God dwells. I don't know if I actually went there or if I just had a vision of going there, but either way, God showed me what's behind the curtain. God showed me where we go when we die in Christ. And here's what he says about it. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. So Paul is saying, I went to a place and it was paradise. Now, paradise is an interesting word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's not even Greek. It's actually a Persian word. If you know your Old Testament really, really well, you know that there was a period of time where Persia ruled over Israel and the Israelites lived in Persia instead of Israel. And they picked up some of those words. One of the words that they didn't have a word for in Hebrew was paradise. Paradise was what the, the rich people called their little private gardens. You had to get an invitation or you couldn't go. And so Paul is saying, that's what it's like. It's, it's like a place that you didn't think you had the eligibility for, and yet I got invited inside. It's actually the same word Jesus used as he was dying. There was a guy dying next to him, and he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Paul had seen it. This is, have you ever wondered why Paul could be so courageous, why he could face death again and again and again and again and keep getting back up and facing it again? Is because he'd seen where he was going. He knew what was coming. And you might say, well, Jeff, I I don't know what's coming. I've never had that kind of vision. Well, I haven't either, but I've got the word of God. And and the Bible tells us not everything there is to know about heaven. There are surprises in store for us, but it tells us enough in order for us to be very, very excited. And I didn't really realize that until 12 years ago. I was a pastor for 13 years before I realized how much the Bible tells us about heaven. I read a book by a guy named Randy Alcorn, and the title is simply Heaven. I highly recommend this book. All Alcorn does is he takes all the scriptures in the Bible about the world to come, and he puts them in one place. And he's a good writer, so he helps us envision what what that looks like, what God is talking about. And when I read that book, I was like, you know, why am I thinking so much about this world when there's a better world coming? you know what's coming, it changes the way you live right now. You don't fear death. But there's a second thing that gave Paul hope. You had to trust in resurrection power. How do we know that the Bible's description of heaven is true? I mean, there's lots of fictional descriptions of fantasy worlds that are very entertaining. Uh, If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, wouldn't you love to visit that place? Talking animals? Absolutely. How about uh, Middle Earth, if you've ever read Lord of the Rings or you've seen the movies? That that looks pretty cool. I remember years ago when the movie Avatar came out, I actually read an article in the paper about uh, something they called post-Avatar depression, 
where people would go and they'd sit and they'd watch this movie for two and a half hours and they'd get immersed in this world and then they'd walk out of the, out of the theater and they'd go, oh, okay, this world is not nearly as beautiful or exciting. Now, how do we know the Bible's not like that? How do we know that biblical heaven is not just a fantasy world given to us to keep us from getting discouraged down here? Well, I'll tell you why. Paul knew why, and he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15, the longest chapter he ever wrote. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, remember that term, first fruits, of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But in each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul says, Jesus in his resurrection was our first fruits. Now, let me tell you what that means, because that's not a term we use anymore. When the Israelites came to the promised land years and years before this, God was creating a brand new nation. So he had to give them a constitution, right? And that was the law of Moses that we read about in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And part of that constitution was, whenever you bring in your harvest, you've been working the fields for months, You've been tending and cultivating this wheat, these grapes, these assorted crops. Your work is finally paying off. I want you to do a very courageous, perhaps foolish thing. I want you to bring it to me. Bring me the first of your crops and offer it at the sanctuary, at the tabernacle. And by doing that, that is your first fruits. The word first fruit in Hebrew is bikarim, is how you pronounce it but it means, it literally means promise of things to come. So when you offered your first fruits, you were saying, I'm giving you this, Lord, because I know there's a lot more where that came from. I'm giving you this, entrusting you that you're gonna provide for me because I trusted you first. By the way, today, that's what we do as, as Christians when we tithe. If you get your, every time you get your paycheck, you, you give 10% of that to the kingdom of God. That's your first fruits offering. That's you saying, I know that you're going to bless me, Lord, with my remaining 90%, even more than if I had kept 100 to myself. So what Paul is saying here is, Jesus is God's first fruit offering to us. He's saying, I'm giving you the first. I'm giving you the best. So you can see there's a lot more that came from. Because I raised him, I will raise you. Because he beat death, you will beat death. All who are in Christ will overcome. So the difference between heaven and all the fantasy worlds we read about and see in movies is that Jesus was real and Jesus is risen. Now I realize not everybody believes that. And if you have trouble believing that, if you're not sure, I mean, rock solid sure. I can, tell, I can stand up here and testify. I am more sure of the resurrection of Jesus than any historical event. But if you're not, and you want to know how I'm so sure, please email me, because I'd love to talk about it with you in a very non-confrontational, non-judgmental way. I just want you to have the information. Death was arrested, and our life began. That's what happened on Easter Sunday. And that's why we have hope. We have hope, again, because we know what's coming, and we trust in the resurrection power. But even that's not enough. 
See, Paul needed to know. He knew that it was real, but he needed to know, can I get in? So that's the third thing he needed and we need for hope, and that is to trust in saving grace. Trust in the saving grace of God. I listened to an interview recently with a guy who worked in the media ministry of a major, major megachurch, one of these churches that just exploded and became hugely influential and then collapsed. And they were asking him, they were kind of doing a post-mortem, so what happened? And he told a story. He said there was a period in time when the pastor of the church thought it would be really, really cool. He was preaching a series on Ephesians. Really cool if the church would send him to Turkey so he could preach in the ruins of ancient Ephesus and he could, he could do these sermons on video. They could video him standing in the ruins of the old church and he could do those sermons there and then show them on the screen at home. Sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, so they, they flew the pastor and his media crew up there and this guy was part of that crew. And, and it, as he describes it, their first day on, on site, they shot from early in the morning until sundown, long, hot, dirty day. At the end of the day, they were very tired. They drove to this resort, beautiful place, huge, huge buildings, beautiful rooms. Every room had its own private pool, incredible looking food, great furnishings. And the pastor looked at him and said, okay, y'all have a good night. And he went through the door and closed the door and they had to drive across town to a bad part of town to this flea bag hotel that was so moldy that he felt like he had pneumonia the whole week long. Now, it probably won't surprise you to hear that that pastor flamed out and that's why the church collapsed because that's not the way God intended spiritual leadership or, or, or ministry to be. But the point of the story is this. I think there's a lot of people, including Christians, who have this fear. What if it's like that in eternity? What if, what if we get there and God says, okay, this one and this one and this one, y'all come on in and you come to the good place, the rest of you get gone. What if I don't qualify? And Paul says, you don't need to worry about that. You just need to trust in grace. As he writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You might say, okay, that's just hyperbole. There's no way Paul, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, the guy who planted churches all across the Mediterranean, the guy who stood courageously in front of uh, councils and kings and declared the gospel, there's no way he's the worst sinner. In fact, he's probably one of the best people ever, right? Paul says, no. Verse 13, he calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. If you know the story in Acts 9 of how Paul met Jesus, Jesus appeared to Paul on the, on the road to Damascus, and you remember what he said to him? He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Now, why did he say that? Because Paul had made it his mission in life to wipe out the church. So Jesus was saying, every time you arrest a Christian, you're arresting me. Every time you beat a Christian, you're beating me. Every time you put a Christian to death, you're putting me to death all over again. So Paul looks at you and me and he says, okay, you think you're a sinner? Okay, so you've slept around, maybe you've stolen, maybe you've lied, maybe you've got a bad temper, maybe you're greedy, maybe, maybe you're, you're arrogant, who knows? You're a sinner, sure, but you got nothing on me. I got the literal blood of Jesus on my hands. Can you top that? And then he says this, verse 16, but, and that's a beautiful conjunction right there. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience 
as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I am God's trophy in his gallery of grace. God saved me so that he could say to everybody else, if I can save this guy, I can save anybody. If I can wash his sins clean, I can wash yours clean. If I can get him into heaven, I can get you into heaven. Do you believe God's grace is enough? Do you believe it? I'm asking you to respond out loud. Do you believe God's grace is enough to save you? All right. Now, if you don't, or if you're just not sure, I'm going to be standing across the atrium in the next steps area after we finish worshiping. Please come talk to me. Please ask me any questions you might have. Get that straight today. But let me just close with this. Someday, unless the Lord comes back first, and that's what I'm hoping for, But if he doesn't, if he delays, someday I'm going to die. I know this. There is absolutely no doubt. People are like, oh, I'm dying. No, we're all dying, right? You get that, right? And some of you are going to outlive me. In this service, a lot of you are going to outlive me. And and I just want to say this. My hope and my prayer is that if there's a period of time when I know that I'm dying and between the time I know and the time I actually die, my prayer is that I'll have the kind of faith, the kind of hope, the kind of courage that woman had who Francis Collins talked to. I hope that the way I die is a comfort to my family. I hope it's an inspiration to you. I hope it's a witness to those who are lost. But what if it's not? What if my mind is clouded with dementia? What What if I just lose courage, and start worrying about what it's going to feel like, the physical process of dying. I just want to say this. I just want to say this right now for every one of you to hear, that for those of you who outlive me, if you're here when I die, that's going to be the happiest moment of my life. Rejoice for me. I, I mean, if you're sad, if you're sad, if you miss me, that's, that's fine, that's appropriate. Weeping for someone you, that's meaningful to you is, is entirely a, a good and a godly thing to do. But don't weep for me. And don't pray for my soul. Because right then, my soul will be exactly where it needs to be. And that time, that moment, will be the happiest moment I have ever experienced. And from then on, I will go from happiness to greater joy, to greater happiness to greater joy. I will have everything I've ever wanted. I will be in paradise. Can you say the same? 